the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an Israelite priest who lived and worked in Jerusalem during the final decades of the kingdom of southern Judah. He was called as a prophet to warn Israel about the severe consequences of breaking their covenant with God through their idolatry and injustice, and he even predicted that the empire of Babylon would come as God's servant to bring this judgment on Israel by destroying Jerusalem taking the people into exile. And sadly, his words became reality. Jeremiah lived through the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and witnessed the exile personally. Now this book came into existence in a really interesting way. Chapter 36 tells us that after 20 years of Jeremiah's preaching in Jerusalem, God called him to collect all of his sermons and poems and essays and commit them to writing, which Jeremiah did by employing a scribe named Baruch, who wrote down and compiled all of this material into a scroll. Now Baruch also gathered lots of stories about Jeremiah, and he linked all the pieces together. And so this is why the book reads like an anthology, a collection of collections. It's all been arranged to present this prophet as a messenger of God's justice and grace. So the book begins with God calling Jeremiah to be a prophet, and he's given a dual vocation. He will be a prophet to Israel, but also to the nations. And his words will both uproot and tear down, but also plant and build up. In other words, he's going to accuse Israel and warn them of God's coming judgment, but he also has a message of hope for the future. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we're going to spend actually the, the rest of November going through the book of Jeremiah. So we're starting in the very beginning, and we're going to start with uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, just where Jeremiah is getting his call from God. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So he's given the authority to take down kingdoms and to restore them. That is the weight of the word of God. Those who are entrusted with it have this grave responsibility, but they don't have power. They're powerless. Jeremiah is going to be thrown in prison. He'll be publicly beaten on more than one occasion. At one point, he's going to be tossed into a cistern and left to rot in the mud. He has no power at all in the sense that we would normally use the word, but he's been set over kingdoms to tear them down and raise them up, to devastate them and to restore them. So how does that work? Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. God has put his words in Jeremiah's mouth. The word of God is the actual protagonist of the book of Jeremiah. It is a book about the activity of God's word in the world through his prophet. 
The word of God is what tears down kingdoms and builds them up. Jeremiah is just a vessel. God's word is not merely text written on a page. God's word is power. God's word is alive. God's word works in the world, and those who are entrusted with the word of God have a responsibility to let it flow from them, even when that comes at great personal risk. The early church was convinced that God had given every single one of them the same calling he gave to Jeremiah, which is why they went to their deaths quite willingly over the word of God. And if that's true, then we all share the same calling. And to be clear, that, means, that does not mean we're, we're called to rule the nation. We're not called to enforce our beliefs through rule of law or to create a Christian nation. We're called to hear the word of God and speak it to anyone and everyone. If the early church had that calling, they did not rule the world they lived in. But they still had that calling. And this commissioning makes it clear that Jeremiah is not just called to be a prophet to the people of Judah, but to all the nations. He foreshadows the mission of Christ and the whole church. We are God's prophets in the world today. The gift of prophecy is alive and well. The Apostle Paul is clear in the New Testament that that is the spiritual gift we're all supposed to be praying to receive because it's through God's prophets that God's word reshapes the world. Even Jesus clearly sees himself as one of God's prophets. He makes a comment as he's approaching Jerusalem, and it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but he talks about Jerusalem and says, you can't kill me until I get there, because that's where prophets go to die. He sees himself as one of the prophets. There's a reason why John's gospel opens with this statement identifying Jesus with the word of God. The living word. So Jeremiah has this authority. The word of God has been put in him. The power and presence of God is flowing through him. And his job is to let that happen no matter what. And so now we'll get to some of his really, really fun sermons. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children I will contend, for cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Qatar and examine with care, see if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God's people have rejected him and they've embraced false gods. And what's worse, no one else in the world does this. The pagans may worship false gods to begin with, but they at least do so with loyalty, right? That's what God's saying. They may be dumb, but at least they're dumb the right way. That's my paraphrase. It's not an official translation. None of those pagan cities would ever dream of allowing their people to abandon the God they worshipped because they were certain if they did that, it would bring destruction. 
And their gods aren't even real. And if these people, whose gods aren't even real, are loyal to their fake gods, how pathetic is it that God's people who have a real, true God who loves them, who provides for them, who brought them out of slavery in Egypt, can't be bothered to keep their worship pure? So you have verse 13, right? They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out these cisterns for themselves. God is the fountain of living waters, a natural spring. That's what that word refers to. A natural spring where the water is clean and clear, and it never stops flowing even when there's a drought. There's always some water in there. The people can drink from it on their own. They don't have to do any work. They just go to the spring, take water out whenever they need it. It's always there. And they reject that. And they labor with their own hands to build cisterns, which are just giant underground pits in which you hold the water, which you have to go get from somewhere else and bring to the cistern. It's not a well. And they didn't even do it right. It's broken and it leaks and the water doesn't stay in. They've rejected the source of living waters and instead they've tried to replace it with something made by their own hands that doesn't even work. It's a foolish trade-off. It makes no sense at all. It's not just evil. It's flat-out dumb. It's unwise. And so he continues in verse 14. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. And now God's getting political. So the situation in the ancient Middle East at this time is that the the Assyrian Empire is in decline. Babylon is rising to power, and Egypt has sort of stagnated. So for centuries, Egypt and Assyria have been the two global superpowers. And eventually, the Assyrians manage to conquer Egypt, but the Egyptians win their independence back. There's this sort of ongoing back and forth between those two. And tiny little Judah sits right in between all three of them. All the roads that connect them run through Judah. If these nations want to trade with each other or go to war with each other, they are going through Judah. And so this tiny little kingdom has incredible strategic and economic and military importance, and all three of those powers want to control it. So for a long time, for decades at least, Judah is a vassal state of Assyria, which means that they're paying them tribute money. They're sending soldiers to fight in their wars. Basically, for all intents and purposes, they're part of the Assyrian Empire, but they're allowed to govern themselves as long as they behave. And then the Babylonians attack and destroy the capital of the Assyrian Empire and and end their control over all these little vassal states all over the Middle East. And now Judah is a vassal to Babylon. So now they're paying tribute money to Babylon, and they're fighting in Babylonian wars. In fact, that's how King Josiah dies at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. The the Egyptians and the Assyrians are trying to form an alliance to fight off the Babylonians, and the Babylonians send 
the armies of Judah out to delay the Egyptians where King Josiah dies. And what's happening now is the kings of Judah, one after another, are trying to play these big great powers off against each other. They're tired of being dominated by other powers. They're tired of fighting in foreign wars. They want their independence. They're playing them off against each other. And over and over again, God warns them, this isn't going to end well for you. But they don't listen. And now, they're trying to forge a new alliance with Egypt. You know, the, the people who enslaved them once before. The very people who God delivered them from. They're going back to Egypt and they will inf- effectively enslave themselves to the Egyptians again. Instead of trusting in God, they are seeking purely political solutions for their problems. And it will be a disaster for them. Which is a lesson for us today. Political solutions will not and cannot save us. Politics is never the answer to our problems, but you would not know that uh, based on the behavior of most Christians during an election cycle. Some of you are laughing nervously because you know that's you. <laughs> We're coming up on an election in the year, so remember this. God is your Savior. God is the one who, hey, good job. <laughs> you all don't normally do that, but you're free to do that whenever you like. Right? God is the one who protects you. God is the one who provides for you. He's the one to whom you run when you have problems that need solving. It doesn't matter who sits in the White House because God is on his throne. My friends, when the church forgets that, We make politics our idol, and we court destruction when we do. See, idols don't always look like little statues you bow down to and worship. Idols look like anything that takes the place of God in your heart. And it's so easy to make politics our idol. Even they did it. And they had a lot of advantages over us. They didn't live in a world where they were surrounded by people who rejected the idea of God in general. Their idols were obvious idols. And they still struggled with this. So now we get to the very last verse we're going to use today in Jeremiah 7, chapter, verses 8 through 11. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So here you have the (laughs) ultimate criticism of the people, right? The people are living like pagans. They're lying, they're stealing, they're murdering, they're sleeping around with whoever they want to, they're making offerings to false gods, but they still come to God's temple on the Sabbath and they make all the offerings they're supposed to make and they follow all the rituals they're supposed to follow and they think that makes them okay with God. Sound familiar? How many people in our churches live their daily lives just like the rest of the world? 
How many of us are going to leave this place and for the next six days sin in whatever ways we like only to come back next Sunday and think they're okay because they are in church? How many people will spend the next week thinking hateful thoughts about other people, driving like maniacs, drinking to excess every day, neglecting their families, viewing pornography, making no effort at all to stop their sinning and then show up at church and think that makes it all right? Or to use less extreme examples, how many people will simply go home and not touch a Bible between now and next Sunday? How many will go home and not utter a single word in prayer between now and next Sunday? Jeremiah preached those words in chapter 7 while he was standing in the doorway of the temple, addressing the crowds who were trying to come and worship. And it's not a condemnation, by the way. It's a plea for repentance. It's a reminder that worshiping God is not something we only do on the Sabbath. It's something we shape our entire lives around. In other words, holiness is not just for Sunday morning. But it is easy to reject that message. We like our idols. I mean, our idols are fun. Let's be honest. We all have our favorite sins. Mine's gluttony. In case you wondered. Our idols will let us indulge ourselves in whatever we desire, but we fail to see that in doing so, we are enslaving ourselves to our sins. We are giving up any control we have over our lives, and we are ceding all of that control, all of our free will, to our idols. It doesn't even feel that way until you try to break free. It feels like you have complete control because you can do whatever you like until you begin to question whether doing whatever you like is actually good for you. And suddenly, you find yourselves trapped. This is precisely why we say Jesus has broken the power of sin. This is why we say Jesus sets us free. Because he breaks the ability of our sins to rule over us. But the thing is, freedom can be terrifying and overwhelming when all we've known is slavery. Just look at the Israelites. They wandered in the desert and they asked God multiple times to take them back to slavery in Egypt. And we all look at that and go, wow, they're insane. How could they do that? But we do it all the time. Even here, in Jeremiah's day, when they have their own nation, their own cities, their own temple to their God, they are still trying to run back to Egypt. They're finding any opportunity they can to jump right back into slavery to sin and death. See, this is why we need Jesus. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. It's why we need grace. And it's why we take communion. This, this is not merely a symbolic act. It isn't just an act of remembrance. Friends, we believe in the real presence of Christ when we take communion. We believe that God does something mysterious when he pours out his Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and wine. That somehow, someway, when we partake of Holy Communion, we are receiving an extra measure of God's grace. That's why we have a prayer of confession before you come and take communion, by the way. So that you have a chance to confess and repent 
before you come to the altar to stand in the presence of God and partake of that holy meal. So in a few moments later in the service, as we pray over communion, as we offer you the chance to confess your sins to God, take it seriously. Confess and repent. Own up to the ways that you have rejected God. Confess all the ways you have turned to idols and tried to return to the slavery from which Christ redeemed you. And then, leave all those things behind and come to the altar of grace. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.